0: What do I have if I don't have You, Jesus? What in this life could mean anymore? You are my rock. You are my glory. You are the lifter of my head. Thank you, Pastor Ross. Shalom, everyone. Good morning. It's an honor to be here from Israel where I've lived for 28 years. I immigrated from a place called New Zealand. Um, Geographically, they say it's the furthest place from Israel. And um, I came through, um, I came to Israel during a wave of immigration from Russia. There were a lot of Russian Jews going back to the land And um, these days it's mainly French, English, um, uh, French, English, South African and Latin American Jewish people coming back. Some people look at the scriptures, the prophecies and say this is a fulfillment of prophecies. I will scatter you among the nations and one day I will bring you back. So it's exciting to be part of that and uh, yeah. Um, I don't have time to go over the last 28 years, but in short, uh, when I immigrated, I learned the language, um, served in the Israeli military, uh, worked in a messianic bookshop for 12 years. Uh, The last 10 years, I've been as a tour guide. Um, I have a wife and four children. uh, uh, We just live just outside of Jerusalem. And uh, when I immigrated, there was about 2,000 of us Jewish believers in Yeshua, Jesus. Now there's about 25,000, so we're growing slowly. And a lot of people ask, you know, what's God doing in the land? And uh, that's not the, the theme of my message this morning. But before we get to that, just briefly... It's not so easy to interpret what's going on in the land. One thing I try to differentiate is be between what's going on on a political level and what's going on from a spiritual level, meaning you can look at the news, you can listen to the news and interpret it through a political perspective and you can look at it through a biblical perspective. What is going on and is what going Is what is going on something to do with end time biblical prophecy? And I certainly believe that it is what's happening. Um, After all, you know, for 2000 years living in exile and uh, through the ashes of the concentration camps in Europe, we have a resurrection, so to speak, the state of Israel is born and now Jewish people coming back and we have Jews from all around the world, all different kinds of Jews, ultra-Orthodox Jews, Orthodox Jews, Messianic Jews, Liberal Jews, Conservative Jews, Traditional Jews, Orange Jews, Pineapple Jews, you name it. (laughs) All kinds of Jews. And um, kind of almost like the days of Nehemiah when the Jewish people came back from exile Uh, they were under kind of an onslaught and they had to build up the broken walls and the altars and the temple with one hand and they had to have a weapon in the other hand. And we need security and uh, wanna thank you on behalf of Israel for your prayers, which are a big part of our security, I believe and also your tax money. (laughs) Because we get a certain amount of money every year from the administration here that goes towards our defense forces. Uh, We've actually got uh, now, well, it's been ordered about 50 F-35 stealth jets and we've got our first four. And apparently we have the rights, not only when we purchase them, but to actually modify them to our liking, which means we can have uh, two, two people in the cockpit instead of one. So and apparently when, after we, uh, we modify them, they're even better than uh, the original. So I always say, hey, if we're really good Jewish businessmen, we'll get them, we'll purchase them, modify them and sell them back at a profit. <laughs> <laughs> but in answer to the question, where is God? You know, one of the, you know, I, I was just talking to someone after the service this morning and she's doing a, a, a study on the different appearances of God. And um, just the other day uh, in Minnesota, I was actually speaking on the theme, God is the unseen God. And many, many instances where he is actually hidden. Uh, in fact, the, the Hebrew word uh, hidden is muster. And from that same word is the name Esther, Esther. And if you look at the book of Esther, you will not find God in any of those pages. And yet if you look at the events, it is so clear that God is moving. And the mystery of Esther, who was told to hide her identity. She was hidden, remember? Mordecai told her, don't say whose people you're from. And uh, Mordecai just sitting at the gates and overhearing an assassination plot, and it was recorded in the Chronicles. And uh, then this wicked man rose up called Haman. Okay, none of you know what we do, but when we celebrate the feast of Esther, We read the scroll of Esther and all the kids dress up as either Mordecai or or Queen Esther. And we actually tell the story word by word. And whenever you come to the name Mordecai, everyone goes, yes. yes. And when you come to the name Haman, everyone goes, boo. boo. And it's a lot of fun. (laughs) We dress up. Why do we dress up? Because we also hide our identity. And we eat these triangular cookies called hamantashans, which means Haman's ears, okay? (laughs) And do you know what? And I've gotta be really careful sharing this among Calvary Chapel people. um, The rabbis actually say to their communities at Purim, which is the Feast of Purim, Feast of Esther, go and get drunk. Okay, that's what they say. Why do they say that? Because when you're drunk, you're not in control. You know, you're not totally in control of your faculties cognitively and all of that. And it's a reminder, because if you look at the story, because one Jewish man, Mordecai, would not bow down to Haman. Remember he said, everyone at the blowing of the trumpets bow down. You know, talk about egotistical. Mordecai wouldn't bow down and as a result, Haman spun the purr, the lot, and that day that it fell on, there was a decree every single Jew in all the 127 provinces on this particular day would get wiped out. So imagine being at the mercy of this wicked, anti-Jewish, anti-Semite, whatever you wanna call him, And uh, he was, by the way, he was a a relative of uh, the the, Agagites, an arch enemy. And uh, how did things turn around? Where was God? He was moving through Mordecai. He was moving through Esther. And Esther, remember what Mordecai said? He said, if you remain silent, relief and deliverance will come. But who knows that you have not been brought into the king's palace for such a time as this. And what did Esther say? She said, okay, I will go, and if I perish, I perish. She goes, and the whole story gets turned around. Haman, who thought he was gonna get promoted, uh, he ends up hanging on the gallows that he built, and everything turns out to be a celebration, a deliverance. So the reason to get drunk, and I'm not encouraging us to do that, is to remind us that when we are not in control, when our health or relationships or whatever is out of control, there is an unseen God who is in control. And uh, that takes real faith. And you think it's hard for you? Just imagine living at the time of Esther when you were facing the sword but the Lord came through and brought deliverance. And, um, and he doesn't always deliver us the way that we want. You look at the early church. They actually faced the sword. But that's why the Lord said, don't be afraid of him who kills body and soul. So um, this unseen God is moving in ways that we don't see. We don't, and, and sometimes we're a part of it and we may not even know it. Did Mordecai know that he was part of God's plan just by sitting at the gates of the city, accidentally hearing an assassination plot? He records it later on when the king couldn't sleep. He asks for the chronicles to be brought and he happens to open it up at that very story. So um, don't underestimate you know, your place in life. Anyhow, that's got nothing to do with what I wanna share this morning. (laughs) So if you have your Bibles or cell phones, turn with me to the Gospel of John chapter four. I wanna talk this morning about the theme, the Lord wanting to set us free. Wanting to set us free and the living waters that he offers us (coughs) in order to set us free. Um, I said this in the early morning service and I'll say it again. (coughs) When you read your Bibles, try to retell the story as you are reading it. Try to go back (coughs) 2,000, 3,000 years Go back to the context, what was going on in the day, socially, culturally, uh, historically. That is the key to understanding the Bible, context. And ask yourselves, who was writing it? What, who was he writing to? What was the purpose of the author in writing it? Was it theological? Was it historical? Um, And these will help unlock the Bible. So you know the story, the story of uh, Jesus as uh, in verse three. He left Judea, which is the area of Jerusalem and departed into the Galilee. And it says in verse four, he must needs go through Samaria. And again, the writer, when he wrote, he must needs, he had a need. He, he's making a, a statement here. There is a reason why he brings that out. And I believe, the, the, uh, as we'll see, you know, he had a, a, a purpose in going for this one lady. But usually the writers and the speakers of the New Testament, what we call the New Testament, remember in those days, 2000 years ago, there was only one Bible and it had no New Testament. New Testament wasn't even written. That was like 50, 70, 90 years later. So the Bible that the Jewish people had and that Jesus had and that all of his followers had was what? It's what we call the Old Testament, the Tanakh. You know that, right? There was no New Testament. So these gospel writers who were writing their accounts, they weren't writing thinking, "Oh, you know, one day this is going to make the New Testament." No. They were just writing uh, um, accounts, their uh, testimonies of what went on. And they were writing to people who had an Old Testament understanding and background. So, quite often, when they did write these gospels and letters, they wrote with things that, um, hints of things that they knew from an Old Testament perspective. If you don't know your Old Testament, then there's lots of things in the New Testament that you just won't understand. So I encourage you, get into really what I call the foundation of your Bible. Really, it is. And kind of the New Testament, I call like a commentary of the old. So you, you'll, you just miss out on so much. So where he says that Jesus must needs go through Samaria, One has to remember the name Jesus in Hebrew is the name Yeshua. And the word Yeshua means salvation. It's the same name as Joshua, salvation. And what was Joshua's task in life? Similar to Jesus, he must needs come into the Holy Land. Why? He had a mission to drive out the darkness, to be a light to the nations, to be a salt to the nations, light and salt, which is what Jesus referred to his followers being. Light, and I believe when the Lord talks about being light, he was probably going back to Genesis. Again, the Jewish people, when it comes to light, they would have probably thought about the creation story, the separation of darkness and light. And then being the salt. Salt was mainly used, Jesus actually referred to it when he said uh, salt is no good if it loses its saltiness neither for the ground or for the dunghill. And you used it in agriculture and you used it um, because in those days, your house was one large room. So when you needed to take care of your you know, your issues, you went outside of the house. There was a dunghill. And after you did your business, you got salt and you put it on the dunghill as a disinfectant. And so the key about being salt and light is balance. Because if you, put, if you mix the salt with too much of the land, of the ground, it will lose its saltiness. So um, Joshua, he had a goal, a plan. He was to come in to be the light in a very, very dark place. And here Jesus is going into a very, very uh, unfamiliar territory for the Jewish people. And we're gonna see part of the Lord wanting to set us free and bringing us to those living waters is that we also will go, not only in our own lives into unfamiliar territory, but we will go into the world into unfamiliar territory. And we're gonna see how Jesus breaks down so many boundaries. So in verse five, five. Then he came to a city called Samaria which is called Syca, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son. Now, Jacob, apart from Jesus and the woman of Samaria, Jacob is, I believe, the key person to this story. You may not have seen that before, but he is. The area, this was a place that his father, uh, sorry, that Jacob gave to Joseph. And of course, land was crucial. Land was very, very important. Obviously, the... uh, the writer John, is making an issue of that. Land was important, particularly because the Samaritans were living in this land, but actually, according to the law of Moses, any land that was um, that you owned, you were forbidden to sell it. It was against the law of Moses. Sadly, however, sometimes, you had to sell it because if there was a drought, if there was a famine, uh, you first would use your money and when that ran out, you would sometimes maybe use your livestock and if that ran out, you had to give your land and even when that ran out, you sometimes had to give yourself, you became a slave. However, the good Lord gave another law that every 50 years the land could be redeemed for nothing. And what's that? The year of Jubilee where all prisoners were set free, where all debts were forgiven and all land was returned back to uh, the people. And uh, just as a little side note, I'm not one of these sensationists that look at what's happening in Israel and thinking this must be end time prophecy, but What's interesting, just over 100 years ago, after the Ottoman Muslim Turks had been ruling the land for 400 years, the British came and took over the land. That was in 1917, okay, 101 years ago. We just celebrated that 100th anniversary. When the British took over the land, one of the leaders was a man called Mr. Balfour, and he declared the famous Balfour Declaration, has anybody heard of that? The Balfour Declaration is when the British said, we, on behalf of Her Majesty's government, are in favor of a national homeland for the Jewish people. Now, can you imagine if you were Jewish living around the world, particularly in Europe, and the, the British, who are now in control of their ancient homeland, say, we want to help the Jews come back to their ancient land. So that's why many, people, many Jewish people started to come back. So that was in 1917. So remember I said 50 years is the year of Jubilee where land gets ta- uh, given back? So that happened in 1917. What happened six, uh, 50 years later? It was the 1967 Six Day War. And in that war, we gained Judea and Samaria and the Golan Heights. That is a big part of our ancient land. That's the heart of our ancient land because Jerusalem, the Temple Mount, was in East Jerusalem. Now, just to take it a little bit further, what happened 50 years after the 1967 war? 2017, a man called Donald J. Trump (laughs) moves the American embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, declaring that Jerusalem is the undisputed eternal capital of the Jewish people. And by the way, and I shared this last night, when he did that, Jewish people all around Israel, particularly Jerusalem, they put posters up everywhere with a picture of Donald J. Trump and with the words, we love Jerusalem, And in the word Jerusalem, the three middle letters in red, blue, and white, U-S-A. They are the three middle letters of Jerusalem. (laughs) So I just think it's quite an interesting thought. 50 years, 1917, the Balfour Declaration, 1967 war, and then 2017. And by the way, and you can buy this on eBay, There is a new coin that's come out, have you heard of it? It's a Cyrus Donald Trump coin. I kid you not. Cyrus was the man from Persia, the same place where Haman came from, who allowed the Jews and helped the Jews and funded the Jews returning back to their land and to rebuild the temple. So if that's the case with Cyrus, why is Donald Trump on this coin? And what is, uh, what? And, and by the way, Cyrus, if you look in the book of Isaiah, where God says, behold my servant, my chosen. He was talking about Cyrus. In the Hebrew, the word for chosen or servant is the word Mashiach. And that is the Greek word for Christ which literally means anointed one. So Cyrus was this anointed figure that God was gonna use. He wasn't even a believer in the true God. He was gonna use to bring the Jewish people back. So don't underestimate who the Lord can use, even Donald J. (laughs) Trump. That's got nothing to do with what I'm talking about. So the Lord is in the area of uh, where, where uh, Jacob gave this land to his son Joseph, very important area. And Jesus would have known the story better than any of us. And uh, verse six, now Jacob's well was there. Jesus therefore being wearied from his journey sat at the well and it was the sixth hour. You know very well how important wells were. Wells speak of what? Life. Water, you know here in California, with your droughts, how important water is. Uh, Verse seven, Then cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me to drink. His disciples had gone away into the city to buy meat. Notice how Jesus waited till his disciples had gone. Why did he wait? Because this was a very, um, I don't wanna use the word immoral, but it was socially unacceptable for not only men to speak with women, but in public. So notice how Jesus is crossing some boundaries here. He's crossing social boundaries, he's crossing gender boundaries, and, uh, and um, religious boundaries, because the Samaritans and the Jews were kind of enemies. And the main reason is because the Samaritans believed that Samaria was the true cultic place of worship. The Jewish people believed that it was in Jerusalem. So verse nine, then says the woman of Samaria to him, how is it that you being a Jew ask me for drink who are a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me to drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now Jesus is going from something natural to something deeper, supernatural or spiritual. Now, something else about the Bible, you'll notice from Genesis to Revelation, the writers, the speakers, the authors, they commonly will to try and uh, express a way of understanding God, they will use a metaphor, a synonym. And quite often it's nature. You know, look at the book of Psalms. Uh, the Lord is my rock and my fortress. The Lord is the shade at my right hand. Deep calls to deep; at the sound of your waterfalls. Uh, man is like a tree planted by streams of living water. And it's all the way through the scriptures. So it's good for us to study a little bit of agriculture. Look at the, the parable of the sower, the different grounds that the seeds were sown on. Jesus uh, explained that they stood for different kinds of people's hearts. So Jesus is going from physical waters to something a little bit deeper. And, uh, and he uses the term if you knew the gift of God. Now, before I mentioned about light and how probably it refers to the book of Genesis, the story of the difference, the the separation of light and darkness. I think when the Lord is talking about the gift of God, He is referring back to something in the creation story. Because in, the, in God's creation, when he created man, man was created to live forever. He was created not to die. And in that garden where man was created to live forever, he had not only a tree with food, but with four streams of water flowing from them. By the way, one of those streams is called the Gihon. And the main source of water in Jerusalem is the Gihon Spring, interestingly. In any event, this gift of God, I believe, is referring back to it, but there's something else. After Adam sadly chose the wrong tree, the the good Lord pronounced the consequences But at the same time, he also gave a prophetic word of redemption that one day, the seed of a woman will crush the serpent's head. So even in the midst of a mistake, a sinner, uh, going outside of God's boundaries, the Lord gives the, the gospel message one day. And I believe that this is what the Lord is referring to when he uses the expression, if you knew the gift of God. So the woman, she still hasn't got the, the spiritual tone. And she says in verse 11, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where will you get this living water from? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank himself and his children? and his cattle. You'll notice she, she knew very much about her past and she was very religious and very traditional and very cultural. She knew all that, but that's about as deep as she could go. She couldn't go deeper. And Jesus said unto her, whoever drinks of this water is gonna thirst again and again and again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never Thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. There's that connection to Genesis, everlasting life. The woman said, "Sir, give me this water." Okay, now she's uh, she, her, you know, he's got her attention. Give me this water, or give me this gift. And what does the Lord say? Okay, here's your gift, but first go and call your husband. Verse 16. So on one hand, the Lord is saying it's a gift, but it's gonna cost you a little bit. So the woman said, well, I have no husband. And that was true. Jesus said, "Uh, you have said well that you have no husband you have had five husbands and the one that you've got now is not your husband. So what you said is true. And I think she was trying to pull one over his eyes by saying, you know, I don't have a husband. And who does that remind us of? Jacob. That's how Jacob was. A a cheater, a liar, a deceiver, trying to get the blessing of God when he didn't need to do all of that. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. (laughs) The spotlight is on her and she's starting to sweat. I perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain and you say that in Jerusalem is the place when men ought to worship. Once again, she's still very religious, very traditional. She knows all of that, but she hasn't quite got what the Lord is saying. and So Jesus said, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you shall neither worship in this mountain nor at Jerusalem, worship the Father. You worship actually what you know nothing of. That's what he said. We know what we worship. Salvation is of the Jews, but the hour is coming. And then he says, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeks such to worship Him. God is spirit, and they that worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that when the Messiah comes, she obviously knew what was going on in the land that the Jews, the Samaritans were wanting. Uh, some deliverer to come and overthrow the Romans. I know that when Messiah, this Deliverer, comes, which is called the Anointed One, Christ, when He has come, He will tell us all things. And Jesus said unto her, I that speak unto you am He. I am He, or I am. And John, I believe, mentioned that because the first reference of that is just before the deliverance at the Passover when Moses was at the burning bush and the Lord revealed himself as the great I am. Jesus is breaking through so many boundaries here, um, cultural boundaries, gender boundaries, religious boundaries, and now he's gonna break through religious boundaries because in that day, according to the Jewish people, according to the Samaritans, there was only one place to worship and it was geographical. It had to be at a certain place at a certain time. Three times a year, the Israelites were commanded to go up to Jerusalem and the Lord is saying, woman, the time is coming and now is. You don't have to go up to Jerusalem anymore. You don't have to take that long journey. You can worship right where you are in spirit. The Father is seeking those people. And then he breaks through another barrier because once you got to Jerusalem, how did you worship? Through the sacrificial system. And if you didn't take a sacrifice with you, once you got there, you went to the marketplaces and you paid for a sacrifice, whatever kind you you needed, And then you would walk up the stairs and some of you that have been on tours, remember those southern stairs that you walked up where you had your sacrifices and then you handed over those sacrifices to the priests. And the Lord is saying, you don't need to go through that ritual anymore. You can worship wherever you are in spirit and in spirit truth or reality now what does that second part mean truth and reality well in those days there were many different kinds of sacrifices that you could offer up there were the sin offerings there were the guilt offerings there were the peace offerings There were the whole offerings. There was the burned offerings. There were the fellowship offerings. There were the wave offerings, the heave offerings. They were all different sacrifices for different issues and different needs. And Jesus is saying, you don't need to do all that because the reality of that type has come. And I am he. And that means, ladies and gentlemen, for us today, the same. We don't have to go to Jerusalem, even though I want you to sign up for you know, the tour. <laughs> we don't have to go to Jerusalem. We don't have to bring a sacrifice anymore. But instead, by faith, we come to the Father, the unseen God, and we offer Jesus as our sacrifice. And that means if we have a sin offering, a sin issue, any, all of us have sin issues, we offer Jesus as our sin offering. What about guilt? That's another offering. A lot of people struggle from guilt. Things that they've done, things that people have done to them, and they can't let go. And they cannot believe that God could ever forgive them for that. This, yes, but this, no. Just look in the Bible. Look at the king of Israel, David. He was the king. He was the leader. And what was his sin? Look at the apostle Paul, the leader of, one of the leaders of the church. What was his sin? He was a murderer. So there's nothing that God cannot forgive and take away that guilt. And by the way, The way they did it is the high priest, on his breastplate, he would have the 12 stones representing all the 12 tribes. And he would lay his hands on these sacrifices, transferring the sins of those people. Jesus is our high priest. He bears the sins and they're all transferred into him. He is the fulfillment. And so friends, this is what Jesus meant when he says that the time is coming and now is when you can worship the Father in spirit and in reality. He is the reality. So I want you to consider that. And these, when we come into a greater understanding of this, these are the living waters that flow in us. Because in the book of Ezekiel chapter 47, there's a picture of an altar And it says, from the altar flow rivers of living water. And where those rivers of living water touched, when they went down, when they're one day going to go down into the Dead Sea, it says, everywhere the waters touched shall be made whole. And friends, let those rivers of living water flow. And that's a free gift. There's nothing we can do to earn or pay to get that gift of eternal life. However, the greater capacity we open our hearts to the Lord, the greater healing, the greater drinking we will experience. And that's why the Lord touched on this uh, woman. She wanted the waters, but he said, okay, first you go and call your husband. And he touched on something in her life, and that's what he does. He touches on things in our life. What's interesting about this woman of Samaria who knew all about Jacob, she regularly came to get water at Jacob's well. She would have known all the stories about when Jacob was in the womb and his brother tried to get out first and he grabbed his brother's uh, heel and how he dressed up in the hairy arms and he deceived and he lied and he cheated. There's one particular story I believe she would have known. And it's the story of those 14 years that Jacob served for the love of his life, Rachel. He had his eyes fixed on her. He was infatuated with her. He said, give me her or I'll die. And, you know, the, the, the uncle Laban deceived him and he, had, he got Leah instead. Can you imagine him standing at the altar and she's got a veil and then she takes it away? And, uh, you know, you know what they say, there's no human being who is perfect. You're standing at the altar, you think it's Rachel and it can turn out to be Leah. <laughs> In any event, the point being is no one can satisfy us. But Jacob thought that he could get satisfied in Rachel. So he served another seven years. Leah, who was the first wife, she actually really loved Jacob and she was infatuated with him. How do we know that? We know that Jacob didn't love her. She was the unloved woman. And she tried all she could to get his love, just like this woman of Samaria. Obviously, she tried to find the rivers of living water in human relationship, and we need relationships. But it happened time and time again, and obviously, there was an issue there. But if you look at Leah, she gave birth to four children. The first child she called Reuven, which means behold a son. And she said, now my husband will see me. And maybe she thought, my husband looks at me, but he looks right through me. He doesn't love me. Now he will see me. I've born him a son. He's gonna be happy with me. Now he will see me. And that didn't work. So she has another son. And she says, and it says she called him Shimon or Simeon, which means uh, uh, heard. And she said, Now my husband will hear me. When I talk to him at the end of a long day, he will actually listen to me. And that didn't work. This poor woman, I, I like Leah. She, 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 she wasn't seen, she wasn't heard. So she had another child and she called that third child Levi or Levi. And Levi means uh, joined or connected or um, what's the other word? Yeah, joined. No, there's another. Attached, Attached, thank you. (laughs) Attached. Now my husband will be attached to me. Thinking all the time. And these are the basic human needs that we have. To be heard, to be seen, to be connected. And that didn't work either. She tried and she tried and she tried. And then she had her fourth son. And this was the transforming, the turning point in poor Leah's life. She said, I will call him Judah, which means now I will praise the Lord. And she realized she wasn't going to get the love from the man that she loved. And she could have stayed in that place her whole life, and that would have been her identity. But she had the guts to go out of her comfort zone. And how did she find the breakthrough? How was she set free? By going to the Lord. And the Hebrew word for Lord was uh, Yahweh, Jehovah, the covenant keeping God. And she found her peace finally in the Lord. And you know, the miracle of that story is you've got these two totally infatuated people, Jacob, who was running after uh, Rachel, and Leah, who was running after uh, Jacob. They both experienced the Lord, and they became the vessels in which the Messiah would come into the world because it was through the seed of Judah that the lion, Jesus, from the tribe of Judah would come. Isn't that a mystery? And you and I are no better, no worse, no different than people like Jacob and Rachel. And so friends, I just close by saying, learn from the story, the secret, the answer to being set free. Learn from Jesus who went out of comfort zones into the world of his day where it was not popular to speak gender, culture, political correctness, religious boundaries he broke through so many boundaries and the living waters flowed and the amazing thing at that end of that story that story began with two people who were thirsty and it ends where both of them had their their thirst quenched because she now, the, 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 the natural water, she didn't need anymore. She left her pot behind. She ran telling everyone, I have found the Messiah. She had got in touch with the living waters. And Jesus himself said, My food is to do the will of him that sent me. So uh, we, you know, especially the Middle East, especially here, we know the answer to breaking down these barriers is Jesus. And he lives in us and we can be vessels to bring a change into our world. I wanna finish by just briefly showing you a uh, a song uh, uh, from YouTube. It's a song, it's actually my son is in it. He's at the beginning, he's at the end, he plays the guitar. And it's a group of Messianic Jewish Israeli youth and they got together with a group of Arab Christian youth. And this is unprecedented, it's never happened. And they got together and they put out a song. And it's out in the Judean desert, nearby where, uh, where we live. And um, the words are Bo Yeshua, come Lord Jesus. And it talks about the spirit and the bride say come and he who is thirst, come and drink freely from the living waters. Enjoy it. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for the story. Thank you for the mystery, how you come to us in so many ways. And we thank you for this picture of living waters and show us how to apply that to our lives. Thank you, Lord, that uh, you are the sin offering, the guilt offering, the peace offering, the fellowship offering, the whole offering, the burned offering. Thank you that through your blood we are reconciled to our Father and that we have chaye olam, eternal life. Pray your blessing on us all here and may we go out and be the, the light and the salt, bringing change into our world. We pray, Lord, for peace in the Middle East and Jerusalem. We pray for more reconciliation between Jews and Arabs. Pray, Lord, here for California as well. Pray your blessing on the church here and that they would rise up and be a blessing and that they would find out where the needs are, where those women of Samaria are located and bring the eternal life, the message of hope. Amen. You have been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.